Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Milford, chair of the club's grown-ups forum and your host for today. We also welcome our listening audience and we invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished moderator. Shelley Sutherland has been working in real estate in San Francisco for over 25 years, first in commercial real estate and now as a residential agent with Compass. As a real estate agent and longtime resident of San Francisco, Shelley's watched prices rise and neighborhoods change all over the city. She's been both her clients and friends struggle to find affordable housing. As a result, Shelley is a passionate believer in pro-growth approach and in bringing people together to solve our regional housing crisis. Shelley is originally from Laguna Beach and fell in love with San Francisco after graduating from Cal Berkeley with a BA in history. So let's welcome Shelley Sutherland. Shelley? Introduce our panel. I will. Thank you. Thanks, John. And thanks for inviting us to talk about this really important topic. It doesn't get discussed enough. And we are here with Christy Wong and Laura Foote, who have made housing their top priority with their organizations. I'm going to introduce them. Christy leads Spurs Community Planning and Housing. Prior to Spur, she was a project manager at Bridge Housing Corporation, one of California's largest affordable housing developers. Currently, she sits on the board of the Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Corporation. And Laura <clears throat> is the executive director of the pro-housing advocacy nonprofit, Yimby Action. Yes in My Backyard pushes for more housing of all kinds in cities across the country. The group has 2,000-plus members. So we now have a new mayor and a new governor, and these people have made housing their top priority. Uh, mayor Breed has a goal of increasing housing 5,000 units per year. In the past, it's been about 2,000, but of the 2,000, it's been mostly ultra-luxury or for low income, and not much has been um, planned for middle income. So, Christy and Laura, um, what are your policy goals and strategies to increase housing options for the middle-income group? I can start. Oh. Uh, <laughs> okay. um, I think that the first step that Yimby takes is saying we have an overall housing shortage and that it's not just the new stuff that's expensive. The older housing stock is also expensive. And that's what you see in a shortage, is that overall prices have gotten really crazy high. It's also true that we have made building the cheaper kind of housing that might be more likely to come in at middle income levels, we've made that really difficult, illegal, or expensive to build. 
So in vast areas of the city, you can't build a, you know, courtyard, bungalow, six unit, 10 unit, missing middle apartment building. That kind of um, what we used to think of as gentle infill um, or what they disparagingly called a Richmond special, um, they, <laughs> where they used to tear down uh, a homeowner would tear down an existing single family home and build a six unit, maybe even, God forbid, a 10 unit apartment building um, that was, you know, just a walk up apartment building. We don't build that kind of housing anymore. Um, and, and that's because of the laws that we have that make it either illegal or extremely difficult to build it. Yeah, I mean, one of the stats is 50% of our housing population, uh, housing stock is, was built before World War II. <laughs> and that's crazy. And, and yeah. it's also true that that housing stock is aging and not always well. Um, so we're talking about, um, you know, especially when we're talking, I live in a rent controlled apartment building, um, and my landlord has been at war with the mice for a while. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, this is a problem that happens when you have a chronic housing shortage as you're reliant on, um, older housing stock that is, you know, quote unquote, naturally affordable. I would like to live in a mouse free, naturally affordable <laughs> building. <laughs> It's okay, Mr. Small, Rowe. I know you're wanting to ask. <laughs> small thing to ask. Um, do you have anything to add? To yeah, that? I mean, I think that um, Spurs' general take on addressing our housing shortage and resulting affordability crisis is is there are many things that we need to do, and most of them fall into two buckets of increasing the overall supply so that we can moderate housing prices, and then also investing more in affordable housing, and um, it's. We, we traditionally devote that affordable housing funding to low-income uh, housing, mm -hmm. and many people actually who consider themselves middle class actually fall into low income when you look at where <laughs> our incomes are today in San Francisco. Um, but, but I think that there's an increasing need for people in the middle. There's an increasing shortage of housing that's available to people in the middle, and so um, I think Laura is right that we need to look at the overall housing stock and how that addresses all of our needs. And then there's a piece of um, a few years ago in one of the housing bonds, a, a small portion of that was devoted to moderate income housing and trying to figure out other ways of addressing that need. And that is a, an important thing. And it's also sort of a drop in the bucket. And so it, we, I think our strategy is more on the side of what can you do on the market to make uh, affordable housing, more affordable to the middle mm -hmm. rather than subsidizing up to the middle because we're never going to have that much money. Um, w so zoning plays a big role in this. I mean, if, if we were to change the zoning, f focus on, say, height limitations, what would our city look like? Isn't it exciting to not know the answer to that question? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, this is, it will look different over time. And I think that that it's strange to me that that is a controversial opinion mm. because, you know, when they started building San Francisco, they didn't know what it was going to look like today. You know, the, the whole Rome wasn't built in a day like that is meaningful. Um, I think that it is a dangerous thing to think of a city that never changes, that's frozen in amber, that it is it's not it's. It means that you're going to drain all of the color and interestingness mm. out of your city if you hold if you try to hold it static. And I, 
I, my, I grew up in uh, D.C. in like the most historic part of D.C. And so my mother is constantly reminding me how beautiful architecture can be. Um, and while I, I understand that, I also think that there is this urge to be um, preserving things for the future generations. And I want people who believe in that to understand that the future generations are deeply concerned about being unable to live anywhere near jobs and opportunity and being locked out of an entire future. Um, I want to have kids. Hmm. The idea of buying a home, which used to be a normal activity in San Francisco, um, me and my partner both work for nonprofits. The idea that we would be able to buy even a modest condo in San Francisco is, is totally out of reach. And so what are we preserving and why are we preserving things and who is the future for? I don't believe that a city should be preserved in amber. I believe that there are things that have historic value that we should preserve, but we have to understand what the cost of overall preservation is. Um, a city should grow. It's exciting. And, mm-hmm. and that's why we build cities is to continue building them, um, is to continue having them be places where people can thrive. And that applies to older people as well. There are a lot of older people who feel trapped in sprawling houses that made sense for them when they had, uh, you know, two kids living in that home who might now want to scale down Mm -hmm. and cannot afford to scale down. I mean, that's like a really weird situation to be in. Yeah, a lot of the older community, they don't want to leave a home that they've been in for 40 to 50 years. They, and there is the whole aging in place concept. But uh, sometimes I think that's not a great way for someone to live. But they don't have the options. There's not that many options for them in San Francisco. Yeah, if they could age in place by moving down the block into a building that maybe would have a doorman and that had a grocery store on the corner so they could still go to their bridge game because they would still be in the neighborhood. You know, that's an entire lifestyle that we don't make available. There is no scaling down and maintaining your relationship with the people in your neighborhood because we don't have a variety of building type. I mean, just as one example of the development project in the Haight, which was on Stanyan and Haight, the old McDonald's. And some of the, I mean, the plans were, I think, six stories. So a little bit higher than the rest of the area. and but lower than what it was zoned for. But there were some neighborhood groups who are very pro-housing, <coughs> but they put a kibosh on this because they felt that it was too high, even though there would have been more, more units built. Right. And are they the background? Correct. I mean, is that going, and that's supposed to also be middle income, you know, more affordable housing. I believe if this is the McDonald's site, I think that's supposed to be hundred percent affordable for low income. For low income. For low income. Yeah. I think that one's going to be all lower income, um, which I think it's, I don't know if we want to talk about this now, but kind of the capital A subsidized affordable versus generally housing that's considered affordable, because those 100 percent affordable projects are low income with a patchwork of subsidies from state, federal and local, and that generally target people at about 55 percent of the area Mm -hmm. median income. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of variation in that, but we're talking about when we say capital A affordable housing, subsidized housing generally targeted at quite lower incomes. And it's 
really hard to come by. I mean, the waiting lists for those are decades long. Mm -hmm. It's a lottery. And when we say lottery, we mean you're probably not going to win. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And and those lists have only gotten longer as the overall housing crisis has gotten worse and worse. So if we could increase, which parts of San Francisco is um, like a good first start to increase height? We're seeing it on Van Ness and Polk Street. Anywhere. Anywhere. (laughs) I mean, to different amounts, right? We're not going to put towers, at least right now, we're not going to put towers out on, you know, the Sunset or the Richmond. But there are corridors in the Sunset and the Richmond and Excelsior that are perfectly appropriate for some taller buildings than we have right now. There are existing buildings uh, in all these neighborhoods that are taller than that right now. And, And but we don't allow, they're grandfathered in, we don't allow new ones to be built. So that's that's possible, but I think uh, you know, adding more accessory dwelling units throughout the housing stock. I think you know we we agree on this for sure, um, and offering more opportunities to create duplexes, triplexes, quads throughout mm-hmm. throughout San Francisco are, would be very smart, and is something that it's an idea that I think across the country is catching on, mm-hmm. and, and even in San Francisco, which is a fairly dense city compared to the rest of the country, sixty percent of our housing stock is single family homes. Mm-hmm. So we have room to change. And I guess how many people can visualize the painted ladies? Yeah. Right. How many people here rec- in that mental model do you know that there is an eight-story apartment building next to them? And like I think that like, you know, we if you propose a new eight-story building out, you know, especially, you know, in the West Side and in Forest Hills, in uh, neighborhoods that have not changed for a long time, you came out and you said, okay, we're going to build an eight-story apartment building. People will lose their minds. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And they just gasp, how could you? That's outrageous. Um, And, you know, I'm not afraid of an eight-story building. Um, I I just don't think they're that bad. Um, there are a lot of pro-housing people who think that um, because we don't want to give people anxiety attacks, um, we should um, ask for, you know, not be quite as eight stories. That's too much. We should, you know, scale it. Yeah. How about five? How about four? Um, most of San Francisco is already zoned for four stories. It's mostly that it's illegal to build multifamily within those four stories. Mm-hmm. So the first restriction we do is density that you can only have on on about, um, I want to say 35% of lots in San Francisco, you can only have a single unit. And then we have duplex, triplex. Um, but a first step would be just remove density restrictions and allow, we don't even have to touch heights, just allow whatever number of safe up to building code units you want in the existing heights. Mm, that's um, a great point. And people would still lose their minds, but I think that it would be yeah. good. <laughs> parking. Parking. Oh, my God, parking. <laughs> um, which, which projects are in the pipeline that you both support as good models for middle-income housing? And which ones are you pushing for in the future? I mean, I don't know if are there... A, ton that are <laughs> that are specifically targeted for middle income housing. I mean, I think there are a couple there is a SFUS the school district has a property that is aimed at teachers and educators and that will address 
you know, a few households with, Mm -hmm. uh, that are at middle income. Um, and then there are a couple of projects that are a mix of kinds of affordable and some of those will get some subsidy to, um, address middle income housing, middle income households. Um, but I'm not aware of a lot that, you know, unless, unless any of the co-living developments can actually address a household at moderate income. I'm not sure that there are many. I, I mean, this is a, it isn't a thing that we, except for the mortgage interest tax deduction, <clears throat> which was, is a federal program targeted at subsidizing, quote unquote, middle income. It was the idea of the um, mortgage interest tax deduction is that we would make it easier for middle income families to buy homes. Mm-hmm. We haven't, um, in the current modern era of housing subsidies, that's a huge one. But we don't think about subsidizing a lot of middle income housing until the housing situation now has gotten to the point where people are thinking about it. And I worry about that because mm. I, if we're talking about subsidizing our way to middle income affordability, the amount of money that that's going to take is something that I don't see a huge appetite for. It is right now going to mean taking money away from the lowest income and moving it to middle income affordable housing. That seems to me like dollar for dollar, a bad path to go down. And we can, the Bay Area is capable right now of building sufficient housing that housing becomes more affordable to middle income people. And, and it's, a, it's a policy choice to have a shortage. And that seems to me not one that we have to continue. So you're saying that we have it now. So you earlier described building, you know, duplexes, triplexes and quads, as well as adding ADU. So you think that would be sufficient? Oh, t- I mean, no. nothing's ever sufficient. You don't build a city <laughs> once, mm-hmm. right? So you, you, you keep, you know, as jobs grow in the region, you continue to build housing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you as a realtor, right? 30 years ago, middle-income families were more able to find housing. Mm-hmm. We haven't built sufficient housing since then. And so the housing that we have is too expensive. And I would add on to I'm bringing up the region. You know, this is not just San Francisco's issue. Mm-hmm. This is a regional issue. This is a California issue. And, um, and I think one of the things we have a shortage of is desirable urban places. So why is yeah. why are so many people wanting to live in San Francisco? Part of it is part of it is the jobs and part of it is the desire to live in a place where you don't have to get in a car everywhere where there are exciting things to mm-hmm. to get to within your city. And so um the more that we can encourage other cities to both you know create or build up some of these urban places and also that they are also responsible for adding more housing. Um, and that we invest in transit that gets to those places, um, that's all a piece of the puzzle as well. Um, right. And that is not to, to let San Francisco off the hook in any way, but it is, you know, we both and. We need to do both of those things. We, and I did want to add one thing on the in terms of the subsidy, subsidizing our way uh, uh, for the middle, um, for the middle, is that uh, counterintuitively it would cost San Francisco, the city, more money per unit to invest in middle-income housing than in low-income housing because um, there are no other sources available. So we don't have federal sources that meet moderate income. Mm. We don't have very many state sources for rental. And so um, the the full gap 
that is needed to make a development viable would all rest on the city. So they would have to put in you know, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars more on a per unit basis, which is a hard and maybe not the right decision for a city to make. Mm-hmm. Not when so many people are sleeping on our streets. Right. I mean, this is a, you know, we need more shelters. We are capable of building more navigation centers. And right now, part of the, you know, we have a ban on apartments in most neighborhoods. Um, Our zoning does not allow apartment buildings to be built. That same ban means that it's illegal to build multifamily subsidized affordable. It's illegal to build formerly homeless housing. It's illegal to build shelters. It's illegal to build navigation centers. All of the things that um, are sort of dense, affordable housing is almost always dense because it's like, you know, it's a scaling thing. You should build a nice, beautiful multifamily apartment building when you're building affordable housing. Um, Generally, it's between five and eight stories. They don't generally do taller than that because it's a good, cheap construction type. Mm -hmm. Um, And the funny thing is that modern affordable housing is so good to look at that you're passing it every day and you don't even know. Um, So we have this weird problem where people will say, I don't want that housing in my neighborhood. And the truth is it looks like the condos. So like, you know, all you're going to see when you pass by affordable housing is a tiny little plaque that might say Tenderloin housing or mission housing. And it's a cute little plaque. And you'll be like, oh, what lovely affordable housing. I'm sure the people who live here are lovely and I want them for neighbors. Um, what what happened with Scott Weiner's bill? Why did that not pass? And, and how can we get that alive again? Could you describe a little bit more about what he was trying to get passed and what the obstacles were to that? Sure. So you're referencing last year, uh, Scott Weiner introduced a bill called SB 827, which um, was really a bill about um, increasing zoning in, around trans around good transit across the state. Um, and even if a city was, uh, not doing its part, (laughs) Um, raising the floor and, um, obviously, you know, there's a lot about that, that is, um, in some people's minds, an obviously good kind of policy choice. And in a lot of people's minds, that was very challenging. Um, and I think, you know, it, it had its challengers on all sides of the political spectrum and um, and it had the challenge of coming from a junior senator from San Francisco. And um, I think this year he's introduced something called SB 50, which is the second generation of that bill. And I think he has done a lot of things to lay the groundwork for a more successful um, bill. Uh, sorry. <laughs> um, and uh, and in part, that is uh, part of the reason why it was um, it didn't pass last year was that the combination of uh, NIMBY homeowners across the state who are, you know, well organized in many of their local communities and in combination with many um, sort of equity and tenant advocacy groups that were concerned about the possible displacement effects and feeling like he didn't do his outreach early enough to to get their input. And so I think the combination of those two things some environmental concerns um, and, you know, the internal workings of state politics <laughs> all con- con- came together to kill it in its first committee. Um, but I think it really started a conversation 
that has continued. It, you know, it was in the it was in the New York Times, it was in the Washington Post, it was in the Wall Street Journal. It was it was across the country something that people were talking about, and so that that is a help that helps to change the conversation for the future. And similarly to a couple of years ago when the governor proposed a, a proposal um, around by right housing that sort of also failed spectacularly. Um, the next year, Scott Weiner came back with what we call what we know as SB 35 um, to streamline housing in cities that weren't doing their job. And, and that was, he was able to get that to pass. So I think in this similar, the second iteration, the more thought through, you know, putting a good idea out there, getting feedback and putting, putting in the next generation out there. And, um, you know, I'm, cautiously optimistic that it'll it it um will succeed this year i think there's a lot of people from all sides of not all sides of spectrum but from many pieces of spectrum and i think he's really he's really aiming to i think take the high road and he has worked with advocates um tenant advocates and equity advocates to understand what their concerns are around um doing this up doing an upzoning around transit and and he has doubled down on the if you are in a wealthy area with like good schools and even if you don't have the same transit your your area may be upzoned and so I think there may be more vociferous opposition there but but <laughs> I think he has the support um, of 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 many types of organizations and he has the support of Southern California politicians as well as Bay Area politicians. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of in a nutshell where that is. And I, um, I forgot what your follow-up question was, but I think it's, well, SB 50, SB 50, yeah, SB 50, which I think also the, the branding of more homes. So it's more housing opportunity, mobility, equity, and stability, more homes. Okay. There's like, (laughs) I think there's a, the branding is also good. There's also the, the focus on also including places that have a lot more jobs and opportunity and good school districts also uh, seeing uh, density decontrol to allow for more homes in those neighborhoods. Sometimes that's called the Cupertino Clause, mm-hmm. um, which I think sort of speaks for itself. But I can say that the mayor of Cupertino in his State of the City address uh, made a joke that uh, Cupertino should build a wall and have San Jose pay for it. <laughs> um yeah. And I, you know, that's the kind, I mean, that's exactly the kind of thinking that SB 50 is meant to combat, um, to say that, you know, Cupertino cannot put up a wall. We all affect one another. Mm-hmm. And when Cupertino blocks housing, the workers in Cupertino don't just like disappear. Um, they are pushed out and are forced to live further away and either drive or take shuttle buses in and add to the traffic of the region, add to all of our carbon output. And also, so when I first moved to San, Fran- San Francisco, um, I had an entry level sales job. And I was calling into a place that I had to practice learning how to say the name of Cupertino, Cupertino. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't know anything about Cupertino. And so I uh, did Google Street View and walked around the neighborhood and was like, oh, no, I'm calling into an economically depressed region. Because (laughs) it looks really kind of sad sack with all these strip malls. (laughs) And I did not, 
understand that I was calling into a wealthy community, but that was so car-centric that it did not look like a place that anyone I knew would want to live. And so, you know, now I kind of understand this, like, larger, like, why does Cupertino look the way it is? Why is Cupertino so expensive? Why are the houses so far apart? And you can't, like, go for a walk in Cupertino because, like, you're on the side of a highway. You know, there's this whole kind of structure of decision-making we've made in the Bay Area to make there be no there there in some ways with Cupertino. That like you could, if Cupertino had built housing at the rate that it needed to to absorb the jobs that the area was producing, we would think of this like larger San Francisco Bay Area megacity as having the neighborhood of Cupertino that could be like as cool as Brooklyn, you know? Like maybe not that cool, but... (laughs) 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 Um, But, you know, like that's... You know, that's the, when I say like, you know, a city is not built once, right? That is the kind of thinking of like, if Cupertino was a vibrant, walkable place that had mixed income and that the teachers who teach in Cupertino could afford to live in Cupertino, like that is a vision that I am here to fight for. What what cities do you, are a great model for us, either here in the United States or abroad? So the one that freaks everyone out is Tokyo, but it's not a bad model. Uh, Japan makes their land use decisions on ba- almost a national level. Um, and they are managed to preserve. I'm not saying we're going to be, you know, Tokyo overnight, but they managed to preserve green space and have high functioning public transportation and housing is not as astronomically expensive as it is here and people get to work and they have tons of other problems too. I don't think that there is a country on earth that doesn't have tons of problems, but um, you know, Scandinavia is also another great example where they really have moved away from, um, you know, Denmark has all of this bike infrastructure that they mm-hmm. just by default make it easy to bike around and not have to be reliant on sprawling car centric infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of places that we can pick and choose what we like about other countries um, when it comes to their housing and transportation policies. Do you have a favorite city? Um, I think that there are a lot of places, I mean, Tokyo is an interesting one. And I think there's a lot of places in Europe where there are, there are things that we should borrow. There are more, there are more models of, um, cooperatives or social housing. There's a lot more investment in, um, publicly owned or nonprofit owned housing that is not necessarily only for very low income people. And so, um, but it is a healthy system, and I think we are we are hindered here by having a past of of badly managed um, public housing, mm-hmm. and so or, and and the past of urban renewal, and so I think the, those those two things um, mean that anytime we want to move in the direction of more public land ownership or more public you know housing that is controlled by the public that might be able to moderate you know moderate prices and um, reduce issues of displacement. And part of that is building. It's not just like preserving what we have. Part of it is building. But when when we bring up those kinds of ideas, um, there's always a cautionary voice about the bad 
decisions that mm. American um, government has made in the past. Right. And it doesn't have to be that way. There, you know, Vienna has a huge amount of their housing stock is, is social housing or, and publicly owned and, um, and, and well respected and taken care of. And people of all kinds of incomes live in those, that housing. And so I think that there are, we can move in that direction. Um, but because of our history, we have some challenges. Mm. We don't even have to look that far away, though, for well-managed public housing because sure. the Presidio, mm. right? We don't think of the housing in the Presidio as being public housing, mm-hmm. but it is owned and operated by the government. Um, and that is, <laughs> you know, we, we could make that a little bit um, less expensive, but it, it's a perfect – we are capable of owning and managing what good public housing. And that's the kind of housing actually to sort of – Housing is really complicated, so you know I feel like it's easy for us to get up here and kind of like get into acronyms and walk. So I have, hope we haven't done that too much. But <laughs> um, you know, there's the affordable housing that we're pulling in all these different subsidies for that is built on public land, but it is a private nonprofit that will build and maintain that. We can also take our public land and build, for instance, we talked about teacher housing and other forms of middle-income potential housing that wouldn't be as generously subsidized, that would be publicly owned and operated. We could um, start doing that. We have to repeal Article 34, um, which is something that's being proposed at the state level right now. Um, So anybody who Actually, I've, I've got a clipboard. Anybody who wants to sign up to get on our mailing list um, and wants to help us advocate for things like repealing Article 34, um, I really want to encourage you to sign up um, because that's how we make change is, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting a bunch of people who will get out there and say this is the next step that we need to take politically. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Your organizations have a lot to do. Um, So (laughs) are there other organizations that are helping you carry this uh, big burden along, pushing along the housing agenda? Which other ones do you recommend that we pay attention to? There are a lot of great organizations. Um, Locally, there's the San Francisco Housing Action Coalition. Um, At the state level, there's California YIMBY. Um, You can – on on the peninsula, there are several organizations – under the umbrella of Bay Area Forward, but Palo Alto Forward, Connect Menlo, is that right? I'm trying to remember. Yeah. There, there, there are a number of organizations throughout the Bay Area um, that, are, that are doing, mm-hmm. that are supporting more housing in all kinds of places. Mm-hmm. You want to name some others? Silicon East Valley Bay. at Home, yeah. um, Housing Leadership Council San Mateo, <clears throat> um, in the East Bay, East Bay for Everyone, who's kind of a sister org of ours. Um, there's there's organizations all over, especially on housing. And then there's also uh, San Francisco Transit Riders Unions. There's the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition, right? In that kind of like urbanist, broad coalition. Um, there's also, I think it's cool to think about their organizations like SPUR that really focus on education and on uh, creating really important documents about 
how and why things are happening. Um, and then there are more advocacy organizations that focus on taking all those white papers and like making people make laws about them. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that's, you know, YIMBY and a lot of the advocacy groups, that's really what we focus on, um, is saying, ah, everybody pay attention to this white paper. Don't just put it on your desk. Yeah. And you bring up something in terms of tra- housing and transportation, which are yeah. such, um, which are linked and we, we, uh, many of the people who are priced out of being here are traveling farther from farther, you know, farther and farther away, Stockton, Tracy, et cetera. And um, I would say, you know, at the mega region scale and then also within the region and within the city, all of those, we need to improve our transportation access um, in order because that, that overall costs to our, on our know both our pocketbooks and our time mm-hmm. is really important to address you shouldn't have to drive to to where you can afford to live it's another huge subject mm-hmm. and it should be another conversation here they are so linked um, and people often will oppose housing in their neighborhood because they say the transportation isn't good enough. So if, if you improved our transportation, we'd be happy to have the housing, yeah. which, you but know, then they don't if, do if, anything. Right, for if, the there transit, were, if the transit, so. if the transit yeah. were improved and they say, but then you're going to add more housing here. So, I mean, yeah, that's a losing favorite. conversation. <laughs> there's, um, there's a guy who runs the um, coalition for San Francisco neighborhoods and he has my favorite quote of all time, which is, well, if you build the transportation, they're just going to want more housing. And uh, I'm like, you got me. Like, <laughs> you're right. Those are the things yeah. I want, housing and transportation. Like, yeah. um, and I do think that um, there is a lot of, um, you know, I, I, I rag on NIMBYs, of course, because like it's technically my job. It is but, your job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I really understand a lot of the, um, there's, there's this fear of change that I think is also, um, when you're talking to somebody who, you know, has seen traffic get a lot worse in their neighborhood and they believe in their heart of hearts, they believe that if you put apartments near them, I've heard people say that like, well, each of those apartments will have three people in them because that's how you young people live these days. And um, you'll also each have a car. And so they're in this new apartment building, there's going to be, you know, 64 cars for 12 units or something ridiculous. And all of you are going to be driving and therefore it's going to make everything worse. And the statistics, you know, if you look, you're trying to make this argument that's like this big picture of, okay, but we're going to move the whole society towards buses and transit and walkability. And part of that big move of society is having apartment buildings. And then you get a coffee shop on your block Mm -hmm. and then you walk to the dry cleaners, right? It's this entire rethinking of how they have lived their lives because they have lived in suburbs and been car reliant most of their lives. And so to come in and say, we're going to rethink how we live, I understand why they feel like I'm lying. (laughs) You know, they're just like, that's not how people live. That's unimaginable to me. You must be lying. You must be paid by somebody to come here and lie to me. You're a developer shill and you're just paid (laughs) to come here and lie to me because I know that my community is just going to see more traffic if you allow that apartment building. And you know, it's a hard vision to say, like, no, I I really, 
I'm not lying. I, I do want to transform society. And I do think that we are capable of doing it. And I also think that if we don't do it, um, <coughs> we are all going to choke on the carbon. <laughs> and it's it's necessary. It's necessary for equity. It's necessary for the environment. It's necessary for my entire generation. Um, and I'm not lying. But there are a lot of buildings that are in the pipeline where they don't even have parking. The city is there's there's some areas in San Francisco, and I think Hayes Valley was one of those neighborhoods where you you didn't have to have one to one. And that makes people even crazier because they're just going to take all the on street parking. That's mm. not like they won't own cars. That you know the biggest reason why a senior housing. Uh, project in Forest Hills was killed was because it was going to be no parking and the mm. nearby neighbors did not believe that the low-income seniors who were going to be moving into there could possibly not also own cars and so therefore they were going to be taking up all of the street parking. Mm. That is something big that happened last year, which is that San Francisco no longer requires minim- requires parking in new developments. So that doesn't mean that every project is going to have zero parking. Developers are likely to have a certain amount um, so that they can meet their market. But mm-hmm. um, it isn't the city's. It shouldn't be the city's job to make more parking than we actually need. And developers will assess whether they need it and, and provide some. Well, I mean, my my takeaway is that the vision is more housing, but all different sizes of housings. I mean, from the two-unit buildings all the way up to the, the larger complexes. Um, if we had more choice in this town, people would be moving more, and it, we we wouldn't be in this juggernaut of just lack of supply here, which kind of put, which pushes up the price. So thank you so much for speaking about this really great topic. And I think we're going to open it up to um, questions. Well, well, we'll do that. Um, we'd like to remind our listening audience, this is a program with the Commonwealth Club of California. And uh, you're listening to a program on housing for the people in the middle. Um, and we want to thank Shelley Sutherland for being our moderator. Thank you. I know there. I know there must be questions. Uh, if you have a question, please raise your hand, and uh, we have a microphone coming to you. Could you talk a little bit about the history of the apartment ban in San Francisco? Where, what, where, when, and why it came, and what it would take to change it? Yeah. So, like most bad things in America, <laughs> it all gets down to racism. Um, so. Uh, we used to explicitly have racist laws that said you cannot, if, if you're a black family, you're not going to get a mortgage in this fam- in this neighborhood. Um, and we had covenant clauses and we had uh, what's known as redlining. The best book on this is The Color of Law. Um, any Richard Rothstein. Actually, we have a podcast. If you um, go all the way into Yimby land, um, <laughs> we have a, a podcast called Infill, and he came and spoke about this very issue. Um, we had explicitly racist laws that were designed to help white 
families purchase homes in new sprawling suburbs and keep low income and minorities out of those neighborhoods. Um, and that extended to things like in the Richmond, um, we banned Chinese laundries. Um, there were all kinds of use regulations as well that were designed to keep the wrong people out of neighborhoods. For the audio, I'm doing quotation marks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, as those laws uh, were stricken from the books, um, it's not like people became not racist, right? We were eliminating explicitly racist laws, um, but there was still this urge to keep the quote unquote wrong people out of neighborhoods. And so a lot of communities went through this down zoning where low income and minority people were going to be more likely to live in apartment buildings. And so if we couldn't just say no blacks, no Chinese, you had to figure out ways to say, okay, well, we're going to ban this type of housing. And so that is really where the origin, a lot of it then got coded in language of light and air and livability. Um, and, and I don't think that the people now always, you know, I'm sure, of course, America, some people are just racist, but I also think that there are a lot of people who inherited this language of light and air and livability and, you know, we don't want that stack and pack urban. And that's where you start getting into the quotation mark urban (laughs) living here. We don't want those people in our community. Um, that that sentiment remains with us. And so you have people who who don't want different kinds of people living in the neighborhood and don't want their neighborhood to change. Um, and we have these leftover laws that mean that they haven't had to be confronted with change or different people in their neighborhood. Um, I do think that we are now at the point where we are capable of removing the apartment bans. Um, SB 50 is the more homes bill will do that in many places. Um, Minneapolis just passed a plan to remove single family home only exclusionary zoning citywide. They did upzoning mm-hmm. both along transit corridors and they're going to allow uh, gentle infill three and four plexes across the city. Um, We've passed laws like accessory dwelling unit, which is allowing granny flats. That's like backyard cottages and (coughs) uh, garages to be converted into housing. Um, Those are steps towards removing the apartment ban. Um, And and I think we'll get there um, probably within a year or two. Hmm. I mean, knock on wood, everybody, but yeah. (laughs) Or is uh, Article thirty four? Article thirty four, or no, or SB thirty five. You don't know. We, <laughs> I know we wonked yeah. out. Total fail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. AD 34. Article thirty four. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, it's you, a yeah. it's a it's in our state constitution, and it basically requires that any public housing, and I don't mean those quotes, it's any public housing or housing that's um, subsidized by the government needs to go to the voters. And so we don't see every development come to the voters because, you know, we will get a certain number, a certain up to a certain cap approved under, you know, sort of hidden in the language of cert, of uh, various um, 
We've Various come things up with like weird measures that come. Yeah. So we have workarounds. That's basically a better way of saying it. We have workarounds. So we don't often see these things come to the ballot, but it is, it is a remnant of a time where that, that we should be getting rid of it. And the thing is, I think it came, to, it came to California voters not that long ago and people still voted to keep it in the constitution. Um, but why affordable housing should have an additional barrier than that market rate housing doesn't have is, is wrong. It seems that everywhere I look in local politics, there's politicians that agree that we're in a housing crisis and promise to fix the housing crisis by building more units. And yet, <laughs> it remains so difficult to get more housing in San Francisco. So I'm curious, who is standing in the way of more housing in San Francisco? Who, particularly in power in San Francisco government, is standing in the way? I think a lot of that is our bureaucracy. We ha you have a slide. Do you want to show your slide? Oh, sure. Well, because I think it's the, the, the there's a difference between and this is where like levels of government becomes really important. Um, the same politician sometimes and not always, but sometimes will say we need more housing. And then when an individual housing proposal is brought forward, they know that the people who oppose it are paying a lot of attention to that particular housing project. And the people who support more housing overall maybe aren't paying attention to that particular housing proposal. And so it's very easy to say, well, I support housing in general, but there's some very specific reason why this one is not so good. And so I'm, we're going to really think carefully. And in a lot of cases, <coughs> they won't explicitly say no. They'll, um, they'll say maybe and we'll negotiate and negotiate and negotiate. And so it'll cut down on the number of units, cut down on the height, cut down on everything except expense. All of the price goes up when you're negotiating, 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 both from the carrying costs of capital. Are we, oh, this is, this is one half of the permitting process. This is um, just to get your uh, permits to build. Um, this is put out by the San Francisco Planning Department, and uh, I like that they used uh, what they thought was a friendly font to be like, it's not so bad. Um, but also unconventional use of the color green. It's actually a return to step one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so this, it's, other people joke, it's all shoots, no ladders. Um, and uh, there's CEQA, which is our Environmental Quality Act law that was supposed to help us make more environmentally friendly choices and has, in fact, meant that everything gets appealed because it's based on basically are, are you changing the status quo? And so if the status quo is sprawl and bad, um, it's still difficult to get things passed that are obviously environmentally friendly, which stinks. Um, but there's a lot of places where a small group of people can hit the brakes. And there's also at the um, city council level, a lot of reasons why an individual uh, supervisor will say no, uh, even when they might want to say yes. So SB 50, um, I'll wrap up. There are so many city council members across the state who have thanked us for doing something that will take some of these choices away from them because they don't want to pay the political cost for approving particular housing, even though they know they need housing overall. And so I do think that like 
there are city council members who, as we did SB 35, which is speeding all of this up and taking it as a statewide, you, you, you're not going to get to be the, the mean one who said yes when I wanted you as my neighborhood group to say no. Um, I think we have to take more decisions out of people who have an incentive to say no. Shelley, I'm sorry. Our time is gone for the uh, record. Um, would you and the panel remain and answer questions of, from the audience? Absolutely. After we've done. All right. Thank you very much. Um, we want to give our, our thanks formally to our panel and um, to our listening audience. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 116th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. Ah, thank you. <laughs>